God our Father and from the Lord Jesus, dear friends. It was the Thursday of Holy Week, the night before Jesus would go to the cross. He's gathered with his disciples in that upper room, celebrating the Passover with them. Three years of teaching were coming to an end. Three years of daily lessons from Jesus given both by word and example. Very soon Jesus would be returning to his Father in heaven. And very soon the work that Jesus had given his disciples to do here on earth would begin in earnest. And yet on this last night together, Jesus' teaching continued. And it was needed. Even after all the time that they had spent with Jesus. And even on this very special night, Jesus' disciples still demonstrated that they had a lot to learn. Luke tells us in his gospel that as they were gathered in the upper room that night, a dispute arose among the disciples about which of them was considered to be greatest. The night before Jesus goes to the cross. Self-glorification. That desire to be exalted above others and honored by others. Something that's common, of course, in the world. It's common in every human heart. And so it's common in the hearts of Jesus' followers as well. And so Jesus took this opportunity to teach his disciples and us one more lesson. He said, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A new command? Well, not exactly. I mean, it had always been God's will that His people should love Him above all things and love others as they love themselves. But on the very next day, Jesus' disciples would see this love demonstrated in a new and ultimate way as He gave up His life for them and for all. The disciples would see selfless love nailed to the cross. Three days later, they would see selfless love victorious over the self-glorification that infects our hearts and all hearts. Jesus' Easter victory gives us a new perspective on this new command. As I have loved you, Jesus says, love one another. And so this morning we turn to these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that great love chapter. And the Apostle Paul shows us here why selfless love is always the more excellent way than self-glorification. And he begins by showing us just how absolutely necessary love is in our Christian life. Without love, he says, 
our best words and our best actions would all be worthless and empty. Listen to how Paul starts. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The Christians in Corinth struggled with spiritual pride, with this desire for self-glorification. And that one gift of speaking in tongues was one that was especially coveted by the people in Corinth. They thought that it would show them to be kind of a superior Christian over against others. But Paul tells them here, even if somebody could speak in the tongues of angels, if they didn't have love, they'd be no better than a noisy gong or cymbal. The gifts of prophecy, spiritual knowledge, and great faith are far more valuable for the mission of the church than speaking in tongues ever was. But here again, Paul says, even if somebody had all of these gifts in abundance, but had no love, they'd be nothing. We could give everything we possess to the poor. We could sacrifice ourselves entirely for the cause. And yet without love, we gain nothing by doing so. Our gifts, whatever they were, would be no more valuable than the one offered by Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember that story? In Acts chapter 5, we're introduced to this couple. We're told that they sold a piece of their property, and then they brought a generous gift and laid it at the feet of the apostles to be put to use for the ministry and to help the poor. But in their desire for recognition, they lied about just how generous that gift was. Self-glorification, rather than selfless love, was the driving factor behind that gift. And so God wasn't pleased. Love is the only motivation acceptable to God. God, first and foremost, looks at people's hearts. And when hearts are not warmed by His love and moved by His love, that they, then they can't produce things that are pleasing to Him. Two people could do the exact same thing. And yet only one of those things would be pleasing to God if one heart was moved by love and the other was moved by something else. The story of Cain and Abel is a prime example. Both of them brought their offerings and presented them to God. And yet Cain had no love in his heart. And so God did not accept his gift. It's a reminder for us to ask ourselves that simple question sometimes. Why am I doing this? Why am I gathered for worship today? Why did I bring a gift along with me today? Why am I serving on this committee or team? Why did I volunteer for this task? Why am I helping this person? 
Is it for the glory of God and the good of others? Selfless love? Or is it for me? Self-glorification. After Paul makes clear just how necessary love is for our Christian life, he goes on to show us what this selfless love really looks like. Listen as I continue. He writes, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Paul's words about love here are pretty straightforward, clear. They're not so difficult to understand, but of course to put them into practice, we know that's a different story. You notice that as Paul talks about this subject, he never describes love as this kind of warm, fuzzy feeling that we get on the inside. Instead, he speaks about love in terms of actions. Actions that are always considering what's good and right for the other person. And so when God teaches us about love, he's not telling us how we should expect to feel. He's telling us how he expects us to treat one another. Selfless love is seen in the simple, everyday things of life. Selfless love is seen in the simple interactions that we have in our daily relationships with one another. But you know, none of us here can listen to these words about love, can read through this section without immediately recognizing our failures in this area. We haven't always been kind or patient. There are times when we're rude and self-seeking. Times when we're happy to bring up the wrongs that others have done in the past. Times when we're guilty of delighting in evil rather than rejoicing in the truth. Paul's words here are a clear, straightforward indictment of our lack of love. And that's a serious problem. It's not a problem that we can just sort of pretend doesn't exist And it's not a problem that we could ever fix on our own. But God has provided the solution for us. Even more so than the words that we just read. God shows us what true love really is in the person of His Son. In Jesus, we see perfect, selfless love toward God and towards others all the time. In Jesus, we see the one who loved us enough to take all of our sins, our lack of love, our lack of kindness, our selfishness, our impatience, our anger, and everything else, and endure the punishment that we deserve for all of it. Jesus is the one who laid down his life for us, selfless love. And through faith in him, we gain everything that He accomplished by that love. Forgiveness of sins. 
a new spiritual life and a brand new heart and of course the promise of eternal life as well. God says it like this in 1 John chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. That's perfect, selfless love. It's an action. Undeserved. Totally committed on Jesus' part. Self-sacrificing. Jesus did it all perfectly. And it was all directed toward us. Even though, of course, He's worthy of all honor, all glory. He laid all of that aside for a time for our sake. And even though in our worship we give Him all honor and glory, that's not the reason why He did it. It wasn't for self-glorification. Rather, it was for selfless love. Love for you and me. That helps us to better understand Jesus' encouragement in the upper room that night. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Paul shows us what selfless love really is. He tells us how necessary it is for our life of faith. And now as he wraps up this section, he reminds us that love truly is the greatest thing of all. He says, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Prophecy, the gift of tongues, spiritual knowledge, these are all good gifts from God to His church. And yet, they only last as long as this world lasts. And some of them, not even that long. The gift of prophecy and the gift of speaking in tongues and the need that that served seemed to be very short-lived in the early church. Once the Scriptures were written down and widely disseminated, once the church was planted and began to grow, then the guidance and direction of new prophecy the confirmation that the gift of tongues brought to the gospel message, those things were no longer necessary. Spiritual knowledge, of course, is something we still need, something we'll never have enough of in this life. But even here, the pursuit of this is one day going to pass away. Because Paul says, once in heaven, then we are going to fully know what now we struggle to comprehend and understand. And so he says, what remains is faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And of course, many wonder why is it that love should rise above even things like faith and hope? Well, one Lutheran pastor gave this explanation. He said, God has not called faith or hope directly. He has called love. 
And so to possess and display Christian love is to be most like God. What could be greater than that? And it's not a bad thought. But in keeping with the rest of what Paul says in this section, it seems that the reason why love rises even above faith and hope is because just like those other things that we mentioned, the day will come when faith and hope will cease to exist. Right now, as we go about our lives in this world, like Abraham, we live by faith, not by sight. Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. But once we get to heaven, that faith turns to sight. Because we'll see him as he is. We'll see Jesus face to face. Right now, we have the sure hope of heaven. It's as certain as the word of God itself. But in his letter to the Romans, Paul asks the question, who hopes for what they already have? And what he means to say is this, that although our hope of heaven is sure, the truth is, we're still waiting for it. But once we get there, hope turns to realization, to perfect fulfillment and ultimate enjoyment. And yet love remains. Jesus' victory of selfless love over all self-glorification. That will be ours to share in and enjoy for all eternity. A little later this morning, 11 of our young people here at Bethany are going to speak their confirmation promises before God. The same promises that so many of us spoke at one time or another, ourselves. And so I want to go back just a moment to the encouragement that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room that evening. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's hard to imagine a better encouragement to give to those young confirmants. And the truth is, it's an encouragement that all of us need as God's people. I mean, to carry out this new command that Jesus gives is really nothing more than to keep the promises that we each made at our confirmation. Love one another, Jesus says. In order to love others, we have to always stay connected to Jesus' love. That's our life, our strength, our motivation. Our rock, as we said before, it's one of the chief promises we make at our confirmation. And I know it's cliche, but it's true. Confirmation is not graduation from our time spent in God's Word. We have to be here, hearing the Word, receiving the sacrament, making faithful use of the means of grace through which the Holy Spirit promises to strengthen our faith and increase our love. Love one another. In order to carry that out, we have to be with one another. And so we have to continue to gather with our fellow believers, to worship, study, to enjoy fellowship. We have to seek to build relationships with those who are not believers so that we can share Jesus' love with them as well. Confirmation promises that we made are exactly in line with the encouragement that Jesus gives here. Love one another. I know it's not exactly a new command, 
But every day is a new opportunity for us to be assured of Jesus' perfect love. And every day there will be new opportunities for us to show and to share that love with others. And of all the things that we might do over the course of our lives in this world, there's nothing greater than that. Amen. Now may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.